Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey friends, welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. This is the weekly highlight reel of videos that I have put out on YouTube. So in case you don't know, you can go over to YouTube and watch all of my videos. The channel is History and Coffee, and you can just search for my name as well, Heather Tesco, History and Coffee, and you will get it. And you can subscribe there. Thank you to the many people who already subscribe. And then what I've started doing is weekly highlight reels of some of the videos that have gone out on YouTube that would be of interest to the podcast listeners as well. So thanks for listening. And you can also, like I said, go over and join me on YouTube, History and Coffee, and search for Heather. And there I am. So let's get right into it. Today, we are going to talk about Elizabeth I's love life and her many international suitors. She was an international woman of mystery. So, of course, the Elizabethan era is one of the most fascinating periods in history, and she was known as the Virgin Queen, yet that was not without its challenges. Her hand in marriage was sought by dukes, by kings, by nobles. It was the stuff of legend. Suitors from across the European continent, as far abroad as Russia, sought Elizabeth's hand in marriage, at least up until the 1570s. and then it became clear she wasn't going to get married. But, and it did, and her romances stayed going, but, you know, that was the height of it. So in an age where marriages were not just personal unions, but political strategies, Elizabeth's marital status became the talk and intrigue of royal courts. She found herself in a constant dance, gracefully balancing proposals of love, alliance, and her ever-persistent call of duty. Guys, this second time around, it's like much more animated. All right, let's start with Philip II of Spain. So Philip II is an interesting one because, of course, he had been married to Mary, uh, Elizabeth's sister, which is weird. But, of course, um, Mary's own mother, Catherine Varagon, had first been married to Henry VIII's brother, Arthur. So, you know, weird things happened all the time in the 16th century. Weird things happen today. Weirder things have happened. So... He was among the first to propose to the new English queen, and his motivation was clear. He and Mary had established Catholicism, again, reestablished Catholicism in England, and he wanted to hang on to that. He also wanted to have, you know, can you imagine they were always at war with France, right, going back and forth. If he had England on that side, it would circle France, essentially, keep England within the Catholic fold, 
maintain this kind of strategic alliance. But of course, Elizabeth, ever the diplomat, demurred and declined. The rejection was not just personal, but it carried profound political implications. It marked a clear shift in England's religious and political trajectory away from Catholic Spain. The hopes of a Catholic England uh, held by Philip began while he was married to Mary would wane. And then over the years, this initial suitor would then evolve from a potential romantic partner to one of Elizabeth's most formidable adversaries. Then, of course, there was Archduke Charles of Austria. He hailed from the Habsburg Empire, which dominated European politics. And the match was, you know, endorsed by William Cecil. It had the potential to be a very significant diplomatic move, bolstering England's position in Europe by aligning with the House of Habsburg. Archduke Charles represented stability and influence. There was genuine interest from both sides. Elizabeth is quoted to have said that Charles was the only man who made her feel like a woman. Ooh, fancy. The two exchanged portraits, which was a personal gesture. And Charles even began learning English, which kind of reminds me of the scene in Love Actually, where Colin Firth learns Portuguese and Aurora, is that her name? Aurea. Forget her name. Aurelia. Aurelia learns English just in cases. Love that movie. Anyway, Charles began learning English just in cases. But the religious differences caused some problems. He was Catholic and his closeness with the Pope. There were concerns about that and about the idea of England returning to Catholicism under his influence. And so negotiations dragged on. Elizabeth became wary of committing to a foreign prince and the potential entanglement in continental politics. Charles was left heartbroken, returning to his territories without an English queen by his side. Then, you guys, we have Ivan the Terrible. I find this so fascinating because it comes from one of my favorite episodes in Elizabethan England, which was the search for the Northeast Passage. Everybody else was looking for the Northwest Passage, and this group with Richard Chancellor and some other fellows formed a company and they thought they would go up north and then turn right instead of left and head east and see what was there because maybe that would be a shortcut. Spoiler alert, it didn't work because hashtag geography. But I did do an episode on it. I've talked about it a lot. They actually, Richard Chancellor appears in my novel too. And so, so there's that. And I get very sidetracked and very excited when I talk about the Northeast Passage. It's one of those episodes that I very much geek out on because it's people doing something different, which I think is cool. And uh, and so, yeah, it it didn't work out, but it did lead to a, a very big trade alliance. And that's what the initial discussions between Elizabeth and Ivan were about was their trade. And it opened up trade routes and all this other kind of stuff for England. So they initially started writing back and forth about like how they were going to trade with each other, trading rights, fishing rights, stuff like that. And then it turned romantic, and Ivan floated the idea of a potential marriage. The idea was politically tempting. It would have opened up more trade routes, been a counterbalance to the Habsburg and Spanish dominance. But there were considerable cultural and religious differences, not to mention Ivan's tumultuous reputation. Stories of his temper and unpredictable behavior were legendary. 
Elizabeth diplomatically declined his offer, though she did maintain cordial relations, establishing the foundations of an Anglo-Russian relationship that would continue to evolve in the coming centuries. But yeah, it was a, a very important relationship for England that started because of taking a wrong turn. Then we move on to Sweden. Sweden's Eric XIV, a passionate and mercurial king, was among Elizabeth's earliest royal suitors. He actually proposed to her when she was still a princess. And uh, it was kind of not a good move because he should have asked Mary first. But uh, he just went straight to Elizabeth. And the idea of an Anglo-Swedish alliance was intriguing because both countries were becoming Protestant. They had some shared rivals. But Herrick's courtship was relentless, almost obsessive. He sent Elizabeth lavish gifts and he wrote her numerous passionate letters. In one, he suggested that they could live together like doves. And Elizabeth entertained his proposals without committing. He even sent his sister Cecilia over to plead his case. But there were stories coming out of Sweden of his increasing paranoia. He was doing things like imprisoning and executing nobles without any cause at all. And that kind of put her off. The final blow to their courtship came when Eric was deposed. And that was the end of that. He was eventually, spoiler alert, poisoned by some pea soup, so they say. I mean, he was poisoned. They exhumed him and found that it was a lethal dose of arsenic. And apparently it was the pea soup. Now we're going to be talk about Francis, the Duke of Anjou and Alençon, representing Elizabeth's most controversial, uh, at least controversial foreign suitor and one of her most publicized courtships. He was a member of the French royal family. He was 20 years her junior. Go her. He visited Elizabeth's court in the 1570s. Their relationship was filled with flirtations, with Elizabeth affectionately nicknaming him the frog. Politically, the alliance would have been a strategic move against Spain, but there were numerous hurdles, the significant age difference and the religious differences. He was Catholic. This was the 1570s leading up to the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in Paris, which was when a lot of Protestants got killed. So the relationships between the Catholics and Protestants, not good. And the English were generally suspicious of a French match. And also William Cecil was against the match. They did share a genuine affection with each other, but it became increasingly clear that marriage was not in the cards. Francis eventually left England, heartbroken, still carrying a torch for Elizabeth, and the two continued to correspond until his death in 1584. Very sad. The domestic suitors. Marrying domestically was always going to be hard for any queen because you would be effectively lifting up one of the noble families above the other and above all the others. And people weren't going to like that. Right. So any decision you made about marrying uh, domestically was going to be hard. So Robert Dudley, of course, was her great love and probably the great love story of her life. And they'd known each other since childhood. They'd spent time in the tower after Wyatt's rebellion with each other. He was a Dudley. So we did a episode on Epsom and Dudley a couple of weeks ago. And then we talked about John Dudley and how he tried to arrange the match with Guilford Dudley. Like all the Dudleys were, had their hands and things. And so that made them quite unpopular. William Cecil was against the match. And of course, Robert Dudley had been married to Amy Robsart, who died uh, very mysteriously. And 
you should check out a woman who comes to TutorCon, Jill McCracken. She has a podcast called The Murder Shelf. What's it called? The Murder Shelf Podcast. The Murder Shelf Book Podcast, I think it's called. And it's on true crime. And she actually just did a series or has a series coming out on who killed Amy Robsart. So I'll link to that. Um, you should check it out. But Jill's fun. And so, of course, she wasn't going to be able to marry Robert Dudley. He had too many, too much baggage. But they did stay close friends and you know, probably in love until the day he died in 1588. She kept his last letter to her, labeled his last letter until her own death. And you know, this was probably the person that she would have chosen to marry if she could have. There were other stories then of other people. Walter Raleigh was mentioned. Christopher Hatton was another public servant and favorite of the queen. She called him her lid, like her eyelids, her eyes. Um, but their relationship stayed platonic. And Hatton was absolutely devoted to her, but he never pursued marriage with her, understanding the constraints of her position. Then there was also Essex. There were a couple other domestic ones that were talked about, but Robert Dudley was the main one. So there we have it, a little, little journey through Elizabeth's love life. Today, we are talking about the biggest event of the year in 1527, a seismic event with far-reaching effects and implications that would shape the course of history. I am, of course, talking about the sack of Rome. This was not merely a skirmish between nations. It was a convulsion that shook the very pillars of society and cultures across the continent set off a chain reaction. The aftershocks, of course, were felt all the way in England, and it affected Henry VIII's divorce from Catherine Varagon. We need to go back and look at European politics in the early 16th century to fully understand it. Of course, it was a complex chessboard of alliances and rivalries, France, Spain, Holy Roman Empire, the papacy, England, with, you know, a ceaseless struggle for dominance. The narrative starts when Pope Clement VII, a man known more for his love of arts than for his political acumen, decided to pit the strength of the papal states against that of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. The Pope joined the League of Cognac, which was an alliance including France, in the hope of maintaining the balance of power. However, Charles V was no ordinary adversary. He was not only the Holy Roman Emperor, he was also the King of Spain, and he held considerable sway over territories in Europe. The initial move in this high-stakes game of politics came after the Battle of Pavia in 1525. Charles's forces delivered a crushing blow to the French. The French King, Francis I, found himself in captivity and then the Pope's alliance was left exposed and vulnerable. Interesting note about when the French king was in captivity. It's a very interesting book called Game of Queens by Sarah Griswood. I've interviewed her here on this channel. I'll try to find the link and uh, put it in. It was years ago. But she talks a lot about the women, the way women ruled with soft power in the 16th century. And then, of course, you even get the first queen regnants of uh, ever really in European history through the 16th century with Mary I then Elizabeth I in England. Um, but when Francis I was in captivity, his sister did a lot to try to free him and did a lot of work uh, and act as regent in some cases. And, and it was a really big deal when he was in captivity that his sister was able to, to take over. Francis is in captivity. Then the army that Charles V employed was ragtag but formidable. 
consisting largely of German mercenaries and Spanish conquistadors. They were seasoned soldiers, but also they were men left unpaid often due to constant military engagements and the empire's strained finances. They moved southward through the Italian peninsula, discontent festered, and Rome stood precariously in their path. The Pope was aware of the impending doom and actually attempted to negotiate to no avail. Rome's defenses were paltry compared to the pent-up fury of Charles's soldiers, hungry for spoils. In May 1527, they breached Rome's city walls. Of course, Rome was like supposed to be this completely holy place, right? With the Vatican, the seat of, of the Pope. So they breached the city walls, and what followed was an eight-month-long catastrophe that historians would later name the Sack of Rome. The Eternal City, once the beacon of the Renaissance, was subjected to ruthless looting, unspeakable violence, and widespread destruction, a level of devastation not seen since the Sack of the Vandals in the 5th century. So, I mean, this is something that we often hear about, especially in English history, just about the effect that that had when the Pope was held captive by Charles, who was, of course, um, Catherine of Aragon's nephew. But really, for Europe, this was a huge deal to, to have Rome sacked like this. The aftermath was swift and calamitous. Pope Clement found himself a prisoner within the walls of the Castle Sant'Angelo. His spiritual and temporal authority was greatly diminished, and the once majestic city of Rome lay in ruins. The repercussions were felt far beyond the city walls. The Italian wars raged on, with Italy becoming a battleground for foreign powers. However, of course, this reached even England, like we talked about. Henry was embroiled in his battle to get free of Catherine of Aragon, seeking an annulment. And the sack of Rome placed the Pope under Charles's control, which would influence the result that Henry would get. Clement probably feared further antagonizing Charles and became increasingly reluctant to grant the annulment. The Pope's inaction over the matter drove Henry to take the decision of immense consequence, which would be breaking away from the church and founding the Church of England with himself as the head. And now, of course, that's remembered as the start of the English Reformation. This decision would fundamentally alter England's religious, cultural, and political landscape for centuries to come. So the sack of Rome in 1527 was not an isolated incident. It was a significant domino in the complex cascade of 16th century politics and power struggles. Its effects were far-reaching, shaping the religious and political fabric of the nations. So today we are going to talk about an early assassination attempt and early rebellion against Henry VII. So let's go all the way back to 1486. England is scarred by the Wars of the Roses, and there's the dawn, in theory, of a new era. The Tudor dynasty has begun with the coronation of Henry VII. But the weight of the crown is, of course, heavy. There's the legacy of Bosworth where the last Plantagenet king, Richard III, met his end. The land is still rife with tension because, of course, they do not know that it's the end of the Wars of the Roses. We can look back on it now and say that was the end of the Wars of the Roses, or 
really, I suppose a lot of historians would say later the Battle of Stoke was the definitive end. But, you know, we can look at Henry Tudor and say, all right, he was the first Tudor and started the Tudor dynasty. For them living through it, it was not that clear, right? So the Yorkists were still reeling from their loss, but they, of course, for all they knew, they had been in bad spots before. They could regroup, and that was the plan. They found hope in figures like Francis Lovell. I'm going to do a whole podcast episode on Francis Lovell because he is fascinating, but we're just going to kind of start to touch on it right here. Francis Lovell had just unwavering loyalty to Richard III. And he is still known as being loyal to the Yorkist cause. And so the Yorkist cause finds new life with him. The Yorkists, of course, want to return to power. And for some, that means the end of the Tudor king. All roads lead to the ancient city of York. And here a plot is brewing, a plan to cut short the reign of the first Tudor king. So Henry VII was trying to visit his various new territories, his land that he now was the king of. And so he was going to York. Within York, no one could anticipate the treachery that was afoot. Within the city, a group of disgruntled Yorkists had gathered, devising a plan to ambush Henry as he visited through the narrow, crowded streets. The plot's linchpin was the element of surprise hoping to catch the newly crowned monarch off guard, away from the fortified walls of his palaces and the heart of his power. However, even the best laid plans can unravel. The Earl of Northumberland, who was once aligned with the Yorkist cause, had by now pledged allegiance to Henry. When whispers of the conspiracy reached his ears, he found himself at a crossroads of loyalty and honor. In a decisive move, he warned the king, thwarting the assassination attempt even before it could fully take shape. Henry's response to the near miss was both unexpected and astute. Instead of enacting vengeance, he chose clemency. He offered pardons to the conspirators, and he displayed a calculated magnanimity. He wanted to heal the rifts that had torn the country apart. This strategy was more about securing his reign's longevity than a simple act of mercy. By choosing forgiveness over retribution, he hoped to weaken the resolve of potential rebels and deter future conspiracies. But for Francis Lovell, the king's pardon was neither sought nor was it desired. As the net of royal enforcers tightened around York, Lovell made a desperate bid for freedom. He fled the city, was then hunted down by Richard Edgecombe and William Tyler, but he actually was able to escape to Flanders where he received support of Margaret of York, who, of course, was regularly funding Yorkist pretenders and Yorkist rebellions. Lovell continued to actually be involved in plots. He was at the Battle of Stoke Field in 1487, fighting for Lambert Simnel. The battle went for Henry Tudor. The Yorkists were fully defeated. Lambert Simnel was captured. His prominent supporters were killed either in battle or shortly afterwards, except Francis Lovell, who escaped, and he fled to Scotland. In 1488, he was given safe conduct by James IV, and this is actually the last record of Francis Lovell's existence. 
That is one reason why I'm very interested in Francis Lovell, because it's very hard for a prominent figurehead of an agenda like the Yorkist agenda to just disappear. And he does. He just disappears from the record. So there's a lot of history's mystery around Francis Lovell himself. And that's what I'm going to do a full episode on is looking at the different possibilities of what happened with him and his life. But for the purposes of this video, we're talking about this early assassination attempt in York where Francis Lovell was part of that. It was merely a symptom of the larger problem that was facing Henry trying to unite the country after decades of civil war. Of course, there was then another rebellion led by Humphrey Stafford, and that then led to the Stafford brothers fleeing. I've done a whole episode on the Stafford family and those brothers. These early challenges to Henry's rule underscored a fundamental reality. The Tudor dynasty was in its infancy. It was very, very vulnerable to the still smoldering embers of the Wars of the Roses. Yet with each confrontation, Henry refined his approach, blending a mix of diplomacy, strategic pardons, and, when necessary, decisive action. It was this adaptability that would serve as the cornerstone of Tudor resilience. From a reign that began under the shadow of assassination plots and uprisings emerged a dynasty that would reshape the course of English history. So there we have it, one of the early attempts on Henry VII's life, the mystery of Francis Lovell, and a peek at an episode that will be coming in the future. Thanks so much for listening to this week's YouTube highlights. Remember, you can go over and subscribe. History and Coffee, Heather Tesco, you will find me there. And we'll be back again next week with more highlights from what went out on YouTube throughout the week. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Blow northern wind, send for baby sweating. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.